Spencer Balpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Eric Longenhagen, and on this special guest-hosted edition of Fangraphs Audio, I am joined by Fangraphs senior writer Jay Jaffe. Jay and I discuss Kurt Flood's Hall of Fame candidacy and just the idea that cultural relevance should impact one's Hall of Fame candidacy in general. We also talk about the way spring training has washed over both of us to this point and a little bit about having children. Uh, and all that is coming up, but first, it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of half of a spring training beer or brat, you can support all of the great work at Fangraphs, including my top 100 list, Ben Clemens' sleuth at work on Trevor Bauer's spin rate, and some of Michael Augustine's work on pitch design. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. Which, if you haven't done that yet, you should. everyone should try it for a year. The board really hums without banner ads, and, and Jason Martinez's roster resource page does too. It's really incredible to visit the site without ads. So uh, take a look at that. Support good online work that you read. And now that that bit of business is complete, and the editor-in-chief is satisfied that I've read her copy, I will take you to my conversation with Jay Jaffe, senior writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. I'm joined by your title is Fangraph Senior. Is it Senior Writer? Senior Writer. Okay, Jay Jaffe. You probably how? <laughs> what have your? You've written. What have your titles at various publications been? Have you always been Senior Writer? This is like the popular. No. I mean, I was I was only a contributing writer at Sports Illustrated because I wasn't on. Technically, I wasn't on staff, even though I was probably producing more volume than. Than in just about any of their web writers during the time I was there, and at Baseball Prospectus, I was you know they call they call their writers authors, the ones who contribute to the books. I've never been that concerned with title, but you know when I came on board Fangraphs, David Appleman said, "Hey, you know how does senior writer sound?" I said, "That sounds great." So you know it certainly is fitting given my age and uh, how long I've been around this racket. But uh, you know I, I don't get too wrapped up in titles. We have a pretty interesting age range on staff now, like when we're all hanging out. The dynamic yeah, is it's, uh, strangely comfortable for the age range that we have on staff. I think it's the the place yeah, where like I hang out with people of varied age groups more often than than any other place. Uh huh. Yeah, I like yeah, I like the fact that the, the it's a wider range than my friends. I mean, I'm I'm fifty. I just turned fifty, but I've got a three and a half year old daughter, and you know, I'm meeting parents that are fifteen years younger, and and you know, sometimes even more than that, and you know, colleagues that are that are 15, 20 years younger. And, you know, I think one of the things about that is it, keep, it, it you know, you have the, the experience and, and I think understanding of, of, of the world to project, you know, a bit more authority with age, but at the same time you have the exposure to, to you know, to younger points of view. And I think it helps keep you young. I mean, I, you know, I'm every bit as immature as I was when I was 30 in some ways. <laughs> Uh, you know, in terms of some of the things I do, but I have, you know, but you know, when you're a parent, you, you have to carry yourself a bit differently. Yeah. Not interested in finding that out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you may, you may get there. You may not. Did it just, was it a uh, switch that kicked on for you? Belatedly. Did it just, was just like a switch that flipped in your brain? Well, no, I mean, I, you know, I guess I, there was a point when I really really wasn't sure that kids were in the cards because I went through a divorce and just faced some obstacles, but you know, all of a sudden it happened and I've been loving it and it's really cool, even though it just sucks up every 
ounce of free time that you have. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's like it, it it it's different though when you're my age because you know most of your friends if they've got kids they're you know they're doing their family stuff. You're not going out to bars three times a week. You're not you know over overloaded with opportunities to see your friends. So you're not you don't have that fear of missing out in the same way that you know I saw my friends go through when when they started having kids in the, in their you know in their forties or or late thirties. The strong – I've had two strong arguments made to me like in favor of procreation. Uh, one was by somebody younger than me who was single at the time, which was bizarre. One of my high school prom dates, Stephanie Popovich, was up, Steph Pop. She said like you have a responsibility <laughs> to procreate because you know that's just what like decent people should try to do so that there are more of us around, which was nice of her to say and was, was thought-provoking. And then the other one is like just to watch someone experience – Halloween at that age or, you know, like to sort of refresh those youthful memories about yes. stuff like oh, man. trick-or-treating and seeing movies for the first time or whatever it is, has got to be so cool. Yeah, it's the wonder of a child. And like, you know, yeah, yeah Halloween has been just a gas to watch my daughter, uh, you know, trick-or-treating in the building. You know, we live in a 26-story building and she doesn't go any, you know, she doesn't go outside for trick-or-treating. She's just doing it, you know, in the hallways here. But she's just so damn adorable when she's doing it. And, and you know, she got her candy and then she said, so tomorrow's Halloween too? No. <laughs> but the next day? No. You know, or, or I mean, it's just like heartbreaking and adorable. But then to do things like to show her the things that, that you know, that that I was into and, and like she has a couple of my Richard Scary books, for example. I've shown her the Muppet movie and the Muppet show and it's like watching her take to some of these things and to follow my lead. If I say like, hey, let's go to the Museum of Natural History and look at dinosaurs or the planetarium or something like that. And, you know, when, when it connects with her and she's it's like magic and it's just like, it's just, it's the coolest thing in the world. I, I, well, I do, I before do, you start, you know, I, I do think that it's something to say for that. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good. Yeah. It's an interesting, you know, conundrum, but yeah, I'm open-minded about it. Kids are interesting and my tolerance level for them is growing. So we'll see what happens with that. Maybe I'll freeze my eggs. <laughs> okay. The, uh, all right. So what do we got? It's, it's March 5th. We're about a month away from the start of baseball season. Spring training is in full effect. It's having quite an impact on Phoenix area traffic in a way that people are upset about. What are some of the storylines that you've been following early on in the spring here that seem to have even a month out might impact the way the shape of the season is looking? Yeah, to me, you know, I, I guess I, I'm I've been fairly uh, localized in my, in my focus. Just a lot of a lot of focus on AL East injuries and and what's going on with the Mets. Those have been those are the things that have been grabbing my attention. I haven't watched a lot of spring training baseball. Uh, I generally don't watch a lot of spring training baseball. You know, I'll put it on for an hour, maybe here or there. But at times, I have a hard time writing when I've got you know voices in my ear. And so, you know, I'll look over and, and there's no sound on it. If there's no sound on it, I can't identify that, you know, who's number 79 that's now batting in the seventh inning or whatever. Then it just, it doesn't grab my attention that much. But, you know, in terms of like the Yankees injuries or obviously there's a big story here. The Chris Sale saga, you know, before that, the Mookie Betts trade, uh, seeing Mookie Betts in, in Dodger Blue is certainly interesting. So I'd say those, you know, those, those are, those are the biggest things for me lately. I, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to remember what else I wrote about. Well, let's talk about that. So Chris Sale's having elbow problems and he has no timetable right now. Aaron Judge has a mysterious like back and shoulder thing that is, as far as, you know, the time of this recording has still been undefined. 
Giancarlo Stanton also having further lower half issues. It just seems to be a consistent thing for him now. I think that Mookie Betts trade, you know, included that Luis Severino's having Tommy John. Yeah. If this if this continues, obviously, you know, the Yankees have some pitching depth in some in some ways they they're prepared for this. But it's not as if Jonathan Loisaga and Jordan Montgomery haven't had their injury problems too, you know. So you're betting on right. Clark Schmidt has looked good, but he's he's has an injury his history of his own. He's had a TJ. He had injury stuff last year. Uh, he's probably on an innings count during the course of this season anyway, because he only threw sixty some odd innings last year. So that's right. an issue. Paxton's hurt too. If you had to take, would you take the Rays in the division at this point? Do you think the Rays at, at this point, just because the cracks with like the Yankees are starting to show, is it enough for you to consider the Rays the favorites in the AL East at this point? Or do you think it's just so early that between Paxton eventually coming back? I think it's too early. On, too early? Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, th- I think it's too early. I mean, I think I, I think the Yankees, you know, they've, I mean, the, Ra- the Rays have got, you know, pretty interesting depth too in the stuff that they're doing with their roster and and I, that helps to protect against injuries. But you know the Yankees have—they've amassed this this horde of of pros, you know prospects or, or or you know that I mean last year Domingo Herman was a real breakthrough and and I think the sense I get is that they've got is they think more highly of you know leaving the you know, Domingo Herman's suspension and 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 what's behind that uh, aside they've got you know they've got guys that they're higher on prepared to take his spot and and these other spots with the injuries whether it's Montgomery who you know looked really good when he first came up and spent most of the season in a rotation Loisiga who I think is you know has a has a really live arm like you said Clark Schmidt who's really I think quickly emerged as somebody who could help them this year even though he's got very little upper minor league experience and if I'm remembering he wasn't even on your top 100 list right yeah, so Schmidt Schmidt had a TJ right before his, his draft. Then he right. he came back and he's you know he's maxed out at about sixty innings since then. He's twenty four. He's had some other injury stuff in pro ball after his TJ rehab, and just the way that future value works over a six year window. Someone who during the course of that six year window is going to have a season where he's on an innings cap probably at the front end. Who has had injury stuff and who will be 30 at the back end of the six-year window that I'm looking at. Uh, yeah, like I did round him down. But like as far as what he's yeah. capable of doing now and what the stuff looks like, this guy's stuff took an uptick last year. Unusual spin rate uh-huh. increase on the breaking ball went from about 2,400 to 2,700, which is a pretty strong year-to-year increase. Yeah, uh, You see 100 oh, okay. up or down either way. Like you, you hear a guy was injured, and you look at his pitch data and the spin rate was down about 100 RPMs uh, on average on both the fastball and the breaking ball, and the velocity is typically down a tick. This was a very unusual increase. So I think at this moment, he's a contributor. But over the course of the six-year window, there are cracks uh-huh. in his profile that aren't in others that just kept him off of mine. But like, I get why other people had him on here. And the Yankees have done a good job right. of building depth behind their injured stars. Like Clint Frazier, we still haven't totally seen. Yeah, Mike Talkman and Luke Voigt were quad A types who the team liked, acquired, and you know used to bolster behind often injured guys like Greg Bird, and they have just seized jobs. So you know Mike yeah. Ford exists in that in that realm too. Mike Ford, they traded yeah. they traded for Ryan McBroom and Garrett Cooper and flipped them for other stuff later, just because Voigt emerged from that group, and so they have a very interesting way of 
of doing it. So yeah, I tend to agree with you that it's um it's probably too early. But this is this is the type of thing that just with the older rosters, whereas the Rays are very young, that you do wonder if this is certainly in a, a season where the the Rays win the division. It looks like this, right? It, it does look like the Yankees sort of crumbling just because of random injuries. Yeah, okay, I mean, it's, so, it's tough to believe the Yankees are going to have as much luck replacing injured players this year as they did last year. You know, they because they, they, it seemed like every time they needed somebody to step up, they did. Whether it was like you know Mike Ford or Giovanni Urshela or or uh, Talkman or or whatever, it, it's it, it just you can't keep getting that lucky um, every time. It seems so. We'll see how that holds. But like you said, I, you know, I do think that the Rays they're bursting with young talent, and uh, yeah, if I think the problem for the Rays is. If stuff goes wrong for them, it quickly becomes a problem that they can't throw money at in the same way that the Yankees can. The reason that I wanted to primarily bring you on today and talk about this with you was Congress sent a letter to the Hall of Fame in support of Kurt Flood's candidacy. And I noticed I went to Kurt Flood's Fangraphs page, and he's not someone who like you've written about in conju- you've written about Kurt Flood in conjunction with like Marvin Miller in the past stuff I've read. Right. And I'm just kind of curious of your thoughts on I assume a certain, you know, you have a certain reverence for Kurt Flood's place in baseball history, but I'm just kind of curious sure. of w- what your thoughts on his Hall of Fame candidacy are and just what you've been thinking about Kurt Flood for the last 30 years basically. Yeah. That's a good that's a good question. I have not written much about Kurt Flood's performance case, you know, for the Hall of Fame. I mean, he was a he was a very good player. 200 hits in a couple seasons, I think seven gold gloves. He was an elite defender who hit for average, hit 300 quite often in a, in a low offense era. Didn't have great on-base percentages, though. Didn't have tremendous stolen base totals or anything like that. Only slugged 389 for his career. You know, I don't think he would have been... I don't think he was really on pace to be a guy who wound up getting strong hall of you know hall of fame consideration if he had merely played out his career you know without without interruption i think you know he would have been a, a you know a multi gold glove winner that would kind of fall in to a a fairly large group of uh, uh, excellent fly chasers who you know just weren't quite good enough like willie davis comes to mind dodger center fielder who did play you know until he was about 40 and i think even afterwards or you know some of the guys like that but obviously kurt flood you know went to the went to the mats you know to to challenge the reserve clause and i think that changes things significantly when it comes to the hall of fame but i think the real problem is is, is the process has just isn't really built to consider a guy like that you know he when he came up on the writers ballots uh starting in 1977 he actually finished below 5% a few times, and, and it was during that time that the 5% rule was formally introduced, and he fell off the ballot for a while. Then in 1985, Ron Santo and, and Dick Allen and a bunch of other players were given kind of a second chance, you know, because they thought the, the early years of the five-year rule wasn't totally uh, fair. He got above 5%, and he stayed on the ballot for the rest of his 15-year run, but he, he maxed out at 15%, and... You know, he's never really gotten the consideration, you know, from a committee that I think would put his career into the proper context. I mean, because he's not going to get in there just as a, you know, as one of the best, like, say, 20, 25 best center fielders ever. He's basically a modern day pioneer. 
you know, and, and the Hall of Fame hasn't really been inducting pioneers for a long time. I think you go back to the uh, the early years of the Veterans Committee or the, the early years of the Veterans Committee, which was like in the 50s, or the Old Timers Committee in the 40s when they, you know, that was kind of the last gasp of the pioneers. Because you can't really pigeonhole them well, it's harder to see the process. This is part of where why I lack context for this, because when you start to to realize that this, like Kurt Flood started playing ball, like MLB ball in the mid 50s. And the context for not only his importance to labor relations in sports and in, and in baseball more specifically, but also at that time, civil rights were in a place that to have a black player challenging status quo the way he did when he you know challenged the reserve clause, it was brave on several levels, right? It wasn't just like a, a labor issue at the time for him probably. I didn't yes. fully grasp the magnitude of like his work, his the fact that he pioneered this uh, until college. Like I took a, a sports law course in college. Philadelphia radio host Mike Missinelli taught the class, and he is controversial and problematic in several other ways. But he was not a bad teacher, and he was not he was not like the person who you would expect to come in talking about. Kurt Flood as part of the course, but we did. And a lot of modern day athletes sort of owe this guy. If you were making a pro sports hall of fame, full stop, all professional sports lumped into one. And we were, because of the fact that, you know, statistics at that point become less relevant because now we're talking about four different sports and it's hard to weigh one sports statistical right. performance against the other. And we're just talking about cultural importance. The inaugural class probably includes... Kurt Flood, who was responsible for, you know, players being employed at a rate that is more in line with what their work is worth and, like, it has enabled them to choose their employer in some way. And so just the notion of someone being culturally important enough to merit Hall of Fame induction in lieu of relevant statistical performance, sufficient statistical performance, is really interesting to me. And there are certainly people throughout the history of sports who probably deserve it, this would seem to be an obvious one. But then the question becomes, if we point toward someone like Kurt Flood, then who else, their cultural relevance and their social accomplishments are probably not as, the effects of them don't reverberate like Kurt Flood's do, but they do exist on mm -hmm. a spectrum somewhere where they maybe deserve some consideration. So I'm kind of curious... You know, the writing of yours that I've read on Hall of Fame stuff, you you tend to include this to some degree, whether it's, you know, narrative related stuff like uh, Billy Wagner is the one that comes to mind where mm -hmm. like I'm a Wagner Hall of Fame proponent. I know that his role as a reliever makes it harder for him to get in and sort of be recognized from a sheer value standpoint as as being deserving. His level of dominance, the electricity of his stuff and the way that that like moved me as a young person watching baseball was important to me. Some of the stuff with his backstory, growing up poor in Virginia, like in extreme poverty, breaking his right arm, learning to throw left-handed. Like these are all, this is all window dressing mm -hmm. that I think kind of pushes his case closer to like induction worthy. And so I'm curious right. who else that has or hasn't been on the ballot in the past or just sort of been around baseball. Do you think has an argument to be included based on cultural relevance and do you think that it's something that we should consider more overtly when we're discussing these things? Because it's not like you mentioned before yeah, the flood think, thing. 
we're not really set up to include it in, in our thoughts as who we induct. Right. Yeah, I, I would I would like to see it. I've argued in the past that I would like to see, uh, you know, a, a modern day pioneer designation for the Hall of Fame. And I think you could you could get Flood in there. You could get, let's say, Bill James, for example, would be someone else. I think uh, Sean Foreman probably uh, would fit in that class, too, for the you know, the way that he has helped spread and disseminate you know this whole statistical revolution. I think a lot about Fernando Valenzuela and the impact he had in terms of, you know, the, the bringing the, the Mexican-American fans and Mexican fans to baseball and kind of helping to heal some of the wounds uh, for the Dodgers' original sin in, in moving into Chavez Ravine and the, that that story. I think of Hideo Nomo opening up the floodgates to uh, to Japanese players. I mean, if you on on that score go back to to Lefty O'Doul, the former major leaguer who who kind of uh, introduced baseball introduces not the word but helped popularize baseball uh, in in Japan way back earlier in the 20th century. Those are some that come to mind. And, and Buck O'Neill, I, I think, uh, you know, with, not just with the Negro Leagues, but as a transitional figure in terms of being, you know, a, a major league coach and scout and just general ambassadorship for the game. And I know they created an award to honor him, but I think this would be, you know, a, a bit more substantial. Frank Job, pioneer of the Tommy John surgery. Um you know, and uh, James Andrews with the the huge impact uh, the expansion of sports medicine has had on on prolonging players' careers. I think those are those are all guys that come to mind. I'm sure we could we could come up with more names too. Yeah, what you mentioned about cultural introduction to baseball that really opens the possibility for some folks who are in the game right now to eventually be relevant enough. You know, if for instance baseball were to really take off in Brazil, which is the thing I've been harping on for a while. Like the next potentially large talent center is Brazil. There are a mm-hmm. lot of Japanese expats in Brazil who have brought the game to them down there. There's relatively little else sports-wise to compete with. You have soccer and then a huge gap between soccer and like jujitsu or whatever, you know, whatever else is sort of in that second tier of popularity in Brazil. Uh-huh. And like it's possible one day we look back and and see Paolo Orlando or Jan Gomes as the tip of the spear that opened up this huge well mm-hmm. of like baseball talent coming from Brazil and the Cubans too who came over uh, yeah. Well, oh yeah Cubans yes trickled in for a while yes I I mean I've been arguing you know for Minnie Minoso to get to get in you know as as a player. I think if you you know if you add his cultural relevance and the fact that you know that you know, Latin American players considered him to be their Jackie Robinson, you know I think I think the case for him becomes you know even stronger. And I wrote about that in my book, the Cooperstown Case Book. So yeah, I think there are probably you know uh, a number of those guys uh, that helped open up these pipelines. The Bill James one is interesting too. The more recent changes, obviously, Bill James revolutionized the way players are valued and evaluated at the big league level statistically. I wonder if, you know, years from now, maybe we're talking about Kyle Bodie or other folks who pioneered stuff on the player dev side, occupying something like that too. But there, there's certainly, if there's on average one Hall of Fame player debuts every year, there are probably folks who, who meet some of these other criteria that are just among us, walking among us right now, whose impact on the game long-term we don't fully conceived just now. The other two examples I wanted to bring up with you as it relates to this are Bo Jackson. And Bo Jackson really, he sort of, 
he occupies a category of guy, right? Someone who grabs public attention for reasons that aren't really related to his level of performance. He was, you know, an okay baseball player who maybe would have been, he's, he's what mine could have been baseball player had he focused on it solely right. and not gotten hurt playing football. I'm curious if that level of just media superstar, if you think he, he has an argument. Yeah, I, you know, that that's, to me, that might be a li- going a little bit, a little bit far. I mean, look, I loved watching Bo Jackson. I will also concede that you know Bo Jackson was much better football player than he was a baseball player because he'd spent so much more time on it. If he, you know, if he had focused on baseball, I think he could have been, you know, great. As it was, he was a collection of spectacular tools, but particularly shaky in the plate discipline department. Very uh, all, you know, all or nothing contact issues that limited his value somewhat. You know, tremendous power. I'd love to see what the scouting grades that somebody would put on his his raw tools. You know, I imagine you're probably talking about 70, 70 raw power and, you know, 60 or 70 speed probably. He was just a bunch of eights. I just think he was a bunch of – what I've been told is that it was a bunch of eights. Yeah. <laughs> except for the bat. Yeah, that's quite possible. But except for the bat, uh, the contact ability was just not, not quite there. I mean – so I don't know. I think that you know, if you're talking about the uh, the fact that he didn't have the longevity, that he didn't have, you know, like he did make an All Star team, he did or whatever, but he didn't have that sustained qual- level of quality. I think that we would want for for this to make to at least help with the um, the argument. It's just it just becomes it becomes a little bit more random. Oh, here's another one though, Jim Bouton. You know, changing the I really you know his for ball four, which changed the way that we cover athletes you know, peek behind the curtain that he gave us. I'm not familiar with that. Say more about that. Well, Jim Bouton was, you know, when he came up, he was, uh, he starred for the Yankees early on. It was a, it was a, it was a hard thrower, but then he hurt his arm. And, uh, you know, by the late sixties, uh, he turned to the knuckleball and, uh, caught on with the expansion Seattle pilots, uh, in 1969 and, and kept a diary of, of his ups and downs, which included being sent down early in the season and then being traded to the Astros, uh, in mid season. And he really just, you know, he, he told, told us a lot, gave us a lot of insight as to, you know, what daily life was like for a ball player, really kind of at the, you know, in the early days of the growing labor movement, you know, the, the union movement, you know, the impact of Marvin Miller, you know, this is all happening during the, you know, the Vietnam war. And he's kind of giving us insight into how his peers perceive that and perceive all the social change that's going on in the country late in the 60s. But he's also, you know, he's also kind of telling some fairly raunchy stories about the Yankees that in their heyday, Mickey Mantle, you know, the drinking and the skirt chasing and, and other players. And, you know, it's it wasn't quite the tell all that it could have been. It's more of a tell some, as he would have called it. You know, it really, I think, you know, s- struck a blow for, for a more realistic, less pedestal oriented approach to, to covering athletes. I mean, Bowie Kuhn, who was the commissioner at the time when the book came out in 1970, tried to get him to recant it which of course is a great recipe for increasing the sales of a book uh, tenfold. Um, so yeah, the man doesn't uh, want it out know, there. It, it, yeah. The man doesn't want, yeah. Read the book that the man doesn't want you to read about baseball. <laughs> and you know, it was, it was the, um, you know, it's considered to be, I guess it was the only sports book that made it onto the New York public libraries lists of uh, the books of the century. It's just, it's, it's, it's more than a baseball book. And I think that that, you know, it inspired all kinds of, you know, quote unquote, inside baseball type looks in not just into into sports, but into other areas as well, particularly politics. So it, it really had, I think, a major cultural impact. 
that sort of bumps up against another thing I wanted to discuss about with you, which is you mentioned like that that sort of changed how athletes recovered and how on the media side interacted with them. I think that's starting to change again because they don't really need us to cover them anymore. They have such direct access to the public now that players can control their own message. Players have YouTube channels now. They obviously have social media followings and can communicate with a fan base through those means that the media, having to interact with the media to be your mouthpiece now as a professional athlete, that sort of is a thing, like it's not a filter that it has to go through anymore. And in some ways we've seen that, we've seen a lot of that in the NBA. We've seen some of it in the NFL. Mm -hmm. Not all of it has been good. Antonio Brown's social media presence is not, it's not a positive for him. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm kind of curious as to your thoughts on athlete empowerment as as labor, the way that it's starting to come to MLB, which is a little bit later than it has in other sports. Like, you know, John Elway got to pick where he worked. Eli Manning got to pick where he worked. You see NBA players moving around at a rate that bothers a lot of older fans. But like, ultimately, if you were an accountant and you, you know, you graduate from college, your CPA or whatever it is, and, you know, they hand you your diploma and say, congrats, a firm in Duluth, Minnesota just drafted you. That's where you're going to go work now. We'd all have a problem with that. But as mm-hmm. far as athletes are considered, culturally, we tend to think that that's just the way things are. And we don't – like, we should be making us think about this constantly, I feel like. Right. Uh, but we're just so desensitized to it. I'm so curious your thoughts on that, especially as, like, labor issues in baseball are a hot-button topic among the media members – at the same time when players, especially around the Houston incident, now seem a little bit more comfortable sharing their unvarnished opinions online. Yeah, but I mean, boy, that's a that's a lot to try to try to digest for for, for one question. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting. You know, I think access to social media and to, you know to player for players is is a double edged sword because you know they risk. I mean, on on the one hand, look, they're entertainers. It, it's good for them to connect with their fans. But, you know, you don't need to – like putting yourself in a position where if you've got a million followers on Twitter, let's say, or Instagram or whatever, and you go 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and have a bad game, you know, you're going to be – you know, you're going to be hearing it from a good chunk of those fans. They're going to be heaping abuse on you on your Twitter account. I don't know how valuable that really is as an experience – you know, I think there's there, there's a danger to that. I mean, I think it's nice to see players who want to interact with their, with their fans, answer questions about process, things like that, or, you know, express a, a more unvarnished point of view. But I think that there's, there's the potential for abuse on both sides, you know, of, of being a recipient of it or of being, you know, kind of the aggressor. And here, I, you know, unfortunately, for as interesting as he is, I'm thinking of Trevor Bauer and some of the pylons he's led on, on Twitter against people he's disagreed with, which I, I just think are unconscionable. You know, I think that there's there's a danger to that. I also think that, you know, we don't, I don't know, I've found that, I, I look, I, I'm very interested in the players and how they do their jobs. I feel less connected to them when I learn about 
some of their personal opinions. Like we're not going to, you know, we're not necessarily going to agree politically. They may have, uh, you know, so there's look it's sports. It's guys who are, have been in locker rooms for, you know, their entire adult lives. Maybe not the most polished at, uh, at, at toning that down beyond that uh, sometimes. And I think that that's, that could be a real problem. And, and, you know, so I think that having the filters in place there serves a positive purpose for them you know, just as it does for fans to try, you know, to to have, you know, funnels of objective reporting that, that do filter some of this stuff out, I think, you know, act as a way to organize this. Do you have competitive balance issues? Like, do you have a problem with the theoretical super team of baseball players who have, you know, behind the scenes, the way it sort of seems to have happened in the NBA, have... And this, the word I'm about to use has a little bit more like value judgment behind it than I intend it to. But like, you know, players colluding behind the scenes to one day join forces in a large market. Do you have a problem with that as it relates to player movement? Or do you think that this is ultimately just these guys' rights as, as professionals to do this type of thing? Well, I think they have the right to do it, but I think it's also it's a it's a different dynamic in in baseball than it is in in the NBA. In the NBA, you don't really have the farm the farm systems. You don't you know teams aren't really looking quite as as far down the road. I don't think you know in terms of like you know in baseball, you might have drafted some guy who's going to be taking over at shortstop in in three years when your current shortstop reaches free agency, and you know, you're, there's there's more planning ahead, and there's fewer I think short-term big free agent deals that, you know, if you're, if you're signing a star, you tend to be signing them for a longer term, you know, longer period, but then you run up against, you know, have, when you have too many of those guys on one team, you run up against the competitive balance tax, which I think is, you know, built in to try to prevent that sort of thing, you know, so you're not, don't have a bunch of, you know, 30, you know, $30 million a year guys all on the same roster at the same time. And teams have acted like, you know, that have treated that as a, as a soft salary cap. And so I don't know. It's a different dynamic. I do. I do think obviously that the players should be allowed to to choose where they want to work. And I think there's there's a lot of unquestioned assumptions that most sports fans have when it comes to like the drafting and 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 the way that uh, young players are significantly undercompensated for their work relative to when they reach free agency. And it's like a lot of fans, you know, wind up taking the position of rooting for billionaires, the owners against millionaires, the players, you know, because they believe incorrectly that the higher salary directly translates into a higher ticket price for them and things like that. So that's interesting. I, as a kid, that that's where I thought, like I thought Scott Boris was wrecking things. I thought it was horrible that Alex Rodriguez was going to sign a deal for as much money as he was. And I, I disliked the Yankees for, building a team that way i'm not sure the ticket price connection was not one that i had made at that time i'm not totally sure why brought about that that feeling in me that like disdain for the players for making as much money as they were and for the teams for building up their rosters that way and i also can't explain what happened when i started to feel purged of that like i i don't recall what my epiphany was you know I was not a big fan of the Ryan Howard contract extension right for baseball reasons but didn't have a problem with it ethically in any way so at some point along the lines like it did it did flip so like last thing before I let you split if I'm running the Hall of Fame I'm the Czar of the Hall of Fame and I call you and say Jay Jaffe you've 
puts you know more work into writing about Hall of Fame induction than anybody else who's written about the sport. I want you to fold into Jaws something quantifiable related to cultural imp- importance. I want to mm. fold this into the way I'm th- that we the Hall think about this, and I want you to come up with something a way of quantifying social gravitas in some way even if it's just sheer popularity unrelated to performance how do you think you go about doing it that's a really good question i have no freaking idea i mean i think you know one thing that i think is has been sort of a proxy for that i mean you know there's there are bill james when he came up with his his hall of fame formula it's called the hall of fame monitor and it had you know things like Gold Glove awards and uh, All Star appearances and postseason appearances had had a lot to do with that. And when you go back and you look at some of the guys who statistically raised raise eyebrows of like why is this guy in the Hall of Fame? It's because he had like two good World Series in a time before television, and, and you know when the World Series was front page news in every city in America that helped drive their you know drive their popularity because this guy pitched two shutouts in a World Series or something like that, and all of a sudden he was you know everywhere in terms of popularity. I think, you know, I think things like that help. I mean, I, I don't know, media endorsements, jersey sales. I think those are things you would probably factor into some kind of popularity rating. Book sales, movie appearances. I don't know. It's, I mean, a lot of that, it's cultural relevance. I think you still have to be careful not, you know, not to overwhelm the idea that you're rewarding the best of the best in performance first and foremost. And that, yes, there is room for the, for this cultural relevance stuff on the margins, but we're not going to turn the Hall of Fame into simply a popularity contest. I think if you do that, I think you're going to have a revolt, you know, among the, you know, if there ha- if there hasn't been one already among among people who already think that the hall has been you know watered down enough by I don't know letting in whatever you could you could pick all you know any, any one of a number of names in terms of uh, where it all went wrong but I think anybody who studied it closely would go back to like 1945 when they elected 20, 20 guys over a two year period with the old timers but it's it's tough to th- think about what else would you would you throw in there I'm curious to your point of view. The thing that generated the question in my mind was the Q score, right? The Q score is like a a measure of cultural, like popularity, basically, for not just, you know, athletes, but any type of celebrity or public person. And I think it was probably around a year ago now when they released some numbers, because I think, I think the constant access to Q scores is probably behind a paywall. But they released numbers last year that showed that Mike Trout was in like the 20 – it was like he had a Q score of 22, which means that like 22% of Americans know who he is, which is way, way, way on the low end of athletes who are elite performers in their sport. So like LeBron James, Tom Brady, those types were like in the high 70s and low 80s among like the ratio of American people polled who knew who they were. So this was, you know, generated discussion about baseball players' popularity in general and some about Mike Trout's lack of charisma specifically. I think he was actually Uh behind Miguel Cabrera in terms of who was able to recognize him. And it was just one of those things that created a discussion like, is baseball going to go the way of horse racing and boxing over time where individuals are so invisible as far as the large or cross-section of American public is concerned? Like, is this a symptom of a problem that 
might plague the sport long term. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, like if you if you showed a picture of Tim Tebow to every American and a picture of I don't know Christian Yelich to every American, I think I know which of those two more people are going to recognize. And I don't think it mm-hmm. should impact how I feel about their Hall of Fame candidacy. But it is stuff like that. And I'm not a big social media guy for my age. Like, I am mostly offline just because of my brain is just better for better off not being on it. (laughs) Yeah. But I do wonder if the constant data that we are all creating now, if at some point we could look and say, oh, look at all this discussion Yaziel Puig generated over the course of his career. It is this level above the baseline for someone who performed as well as he did which speaks to how he moved us in a way that has nothing to do with baseball performance and just has to do with his personality. Like you can kind of quantify at that point how much discussion he generated based on him fighting all of the pirates or hosing a dude at third with some like epic throw from the warning (laughs) track, like whatever it is. And so I do think, Maybe not for Hall of Fame purposes, but just understanding that understanding us and you know through the player uh, and the yeah. discussion that we have based on him is interesting to me. Well, have, here's here's a question for: Have you ever heard of the baseball reliquary out in California? No, it's it's kind of like a cult, a baseball culture Hall of Fame, and it it has a lot of offbeat. Some of the guys that we've that have come up for discussion here: Marvin Miller, Jim Bouton, Doc Ellis, Mark Fidrich. Kurt Flood. Basically, it's 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 a it, it is it is geared towards cultural relevance. It's run out of I think it's the Pomona Public Library, and it's a it's a collection of artifacts. And they have an they actually do have a uh, you know a membership and a if you're a member, which is only like twenty twenty five bucks a year, I think it is. You can vote in their annual elections, and they've they usually I think induct three people a year. They've been doing it for about maybe twenty years. And if you look at the list of, of of the people they've inducted, it's it's a it, it touches on a lot of the a lot of these guys that we've that we've talked about in terms of what you would what you would bring to that. Let me see if I can pull this up here. Yeah, I had no idea this existed. This is pretty cool. I'm looking yeah, at it. Yeah, they call it their Shrine of the Eternals. There you go. And, I'm into that. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see if I can get a list. A list. Yeah, it's it's quite a fascinating list. Let's see: Jim Abbott, Roger Angel, Mo Berg. Isla Borders, the, the the woman pitcher who who played professionally, Jim Bouton, Jim Brosnan, who kind of a precursor of Bouton, Glenn Burke, inventor of the high five, and and, and came out as gay after his uh, all too brief playing career. Man, uh, what you know, what if you got royalties for inventing the high five? Yes, seriously, <laughs> it's got to be like on happy birthday level of of lucrative. Yeah, this is cool. I got to check this out when I go to SoCal to see high schoolers at some point this spring. Cool. Yeah, it's it's you know it's 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 worth a it's worth a stop. Jay Jaffe, I think you've uh, fulfilled your obligations to Fangraphs Audio. Do you have anything you want to plug before I send you on your your way on this merry Thursday? Just you know, I, let's see what have, what have I got to plug? Uh, you know, just my usual stuff. Uh, nothing in particular standing out here. Read the uh, I just wrote about Kristen Yelich's extension. It looks like I'm I'm going to be put on the hook to write about Yon Moncada's extension here. And oh, did that happen as we've been recording? It's happened as we've as we've been recording here. I think it's uh, I, th- I think I saw seventy million dollars for five years. I'll have to look at that more closely. So don't take that to the bank. I'm just seeing this go by on Twitter and seeing uh, uh, Meg reaching out to me to see if I'm available. So anyway, yes, that's uh, that, that that's where we're at with that. 
All right, well, thank you for joining us, and uh, I'll see you in a couple weeks out here in the desert. All right, a pleasure, Eric. Good chatting baseball. Thanks. (laughs) Let's keep our fingers crossed. Jay for coming on. I asked him last minute. I pinch hit for Meg this week because she's doing, she's pulling double duty on Effectively Wild and, you know, there's just only so many hours in the day for everyone. So glad to help out and uh, come off the bench and, and pinch it on Fangraphs Audio. And I wanted to take some time to do, do a little bit of housekeeping here on the back end of the pod and kind of talk about a few of the other news items in baseball that have been of interest to me this week. And so the first one is that our March meetup, this is the housekeeping bit, our March meetup in Scottsdale has been canceled. We whacked it just because, you know, the concern over the coronavirus, basically. Some of, you know, the the comment section of the announcement was filled with frustration. Like, I get it. We want to hang out with you guys too. But just like the risk just greatly out, outweighs the reward. I think I'm pretty comfortable speaking for, for David and, and Meg who like made the call on this collectively in some way. That like, you know, the even the chance that anyone crosses paths with... So you know, we're, we'd be getting a lot of people from all over the country together in one place in close quarters and then sending you home. And that's just maybe not the best idea. We don't want to be on, you know, in a CDC press release. So it's just a no. We'll do this stuff again. You know, this will blow over. Everyone take care of your immune system. And uh, we'll do more of these in the future. And we'll be overserved around one another again soon. It'll be okay. So that little bit of business out of the way. Let's talk about some of the stuff that's going on in baseball. And like, if you guys aren't familiar with, with my work, you're looking for the big league stuff. I'm going to talk a little bit about that too, but I do want to talk about some of the the prospect-oriented things that I've been thinking about over the last week. You've been watching spring training, no doubt. You're listening to Fangraphs Audio, so you've you've probably seen your fair share of spring training games that have been following it to some degree in anticipation of the season. Next week, if you're listening to this, there's more baseball. There are Olympic and WBC qualifiers here in Arizona. Some of the, especially the Olympic qualifiers, have some of the big countries, the DR. Team USA, Cuba, they're here in Arizona. The WBC qualifier is down in Tucson at the Kino Sports Complex, which is like a, a pretty nice facility, honestly. Like, I, I do wish there were a, a AAA team down there in that facility or something. It would be interesting to have an affiliate outside of the AZL teams there. So that's going on. So watch out for that stuff. There will be interesting prospects for sure playing on some of these teams. I don't have all the rosters to this point. And certainly there will be some conflict. There are going to be big league teams who don't want their guys going to play in the Olympic qualifier, which is going to open up spots for some prospects, but also probably take away some who would have who would have played had they had they not been bets to like factor into their big league pictures this year. So like Joe Adele was on the Team USA Premier 12 team last fall as they tried to qualify for the Olympics at that time and failed. And so, like, theoretically, he and Andrew Vaughn and Bobby Dahlbeck and Noah Song, prospects who were on that team, would have, you know, they're part of the Team USA group now. Theoretically, they'd be part of picture moving forward, but I'm not sure how many of those guys are actually going to be allowed to play in the qualifier. So keep an eye out for that. I will be I will be at some of that stuff to see, especially if the rosters are stacked with prospects. Like, um, I'll go check some of that stuff out in person next week. 
The other thing to watch for this weekend, assuming, I'm guessing that this will be published either late today, Thursday, when it's being recorded, or, or Friday, is uh, college stuff over the weekend. We've had some high school pop-up guys already for the 2020 draft, and the same goes for the college end of things. The, the big, the weekend where the, or rather the place where most of the, the heavy hitters in the industry are going to be this weekend, it's going to be a lot of national cross-checkers and scouting directors. We'll be at the New Mexico State and Texas A&M series in College Station. That's Nick Gonzalez, the New Mexico State shortstop, versus Asa Lacey and Christian Roa, the Friday and Saturday guys, for Texas A&M. And Gonzalez, Gonzalez is, has made an early season statistical case, and really this probably began last summer on the Cape. He's made an early season statistical case to be in the top five conversation. You know, from a hand talent and raw power and like bat speed perspective, he is in the the top group of college bats with like Torkelson, although I think he's clearly behind Torkelson from like a bat speed and raw power perspective, and Garrett Mitchell, the, the UCLA center fielder. But Gonzalez plays in a very hitter-friendly environment at Mexico State, smart conference. He came to ASU midweek. Last week to face Eric Tolman, who's like a lefty who sits 88 to 90. And, you know, Tolman was was beating him with below average fastballs at the top of the zone. Gonzalez booted two easy ground balls. He made two nice plays too. But, you know, whether or not this guy answers questions against elite pitching is sort of dictated by how many opportunities he has to face it. And this weekend against Asa Lacey, who's like 94-97 with a you know plus breaking ball, above average changeup. Christian Roa, who's really coming to his own. This is a pop-up college arm, 93 to 95, two good breaking balls. This is the biggest weekend of Nick Gonzalez's spring and probably his amateur baseball career to this to this point. He is either going to make himself a lot of money and firmly insert himself into the top three or four picks or really struggle and have more questions about whether or not this guy can hit elite pitching. Now, he performed on the Cape with Wood, and that's a pretty significant feather in in his cap as far as front offices deciding how real his statistical performance at New Mexico State is, because the, the numbers are just not reliable. He had five home runs last Saturday over the course of a doubleheader, and like that's you know emblematic of the hitting environment at New Mexico State. So that'll be interesting to see. Also, pop-up guy, high school kid in Texas, Lang, Justin Lang who reportedly, this was you know on the Twitter, uh, was up to 100 in his last start. I double-checked with some scouts who I know have seen him who have Texas as part of their area of coverage, who saw him the start before and had him mostly 91-94. This is like a big, long-limbed 6'5 prep righty. So 91-94, like touching 6 a couple weeks ago and then up to 100 like a week or two later, uh, supposedly. So still trying to verify that that he is indeed throwing that hard. The summer before, when I saw Lang, he was like, you know, up to 93. And with a build like that, the velo popping like it seems to have is always a possibility. And there are a handful of guys like that every year. A bunch of them haven't even started throwing yet this spring. They're they're Midwest or Northeast arms who who are yet to get underway. Their seasons don't start until April, for instance. Nick Bitsko, the big high school righty from, uh, Pennsylvania, who reclassified as a 2020 draft, he like his season hasn't started yet. So you have several weeks worth of performance to weigh for certain individuals, and then others who have yet to to get going. And so it does create like a weird sort of imbalance of information that you're sort of taking in for some, and there's nothing coming in for others. 
So as far as lining players up on the board, that's um, an interesting thing. But uh, yeah, Justin Lang in Texas is a pop-up arm. The other thing to watch out for, the Cubans. Cubans who are going to be here in Arizona, Yoelkis Cespedes, Yoenis' half-brother. He has been cleared to sign with teams. He'll start working out for teams. I don't think he's going to be in Arizona with the rest of the Cubans who are going to be playing here. It's more likely that he works out in Florida in my estimation, but the Cubans who are going to be here are, are of interest too. And again, like some of the rosters have not yet been released. And so we'll see who the, the prospects will be. But yeah, Yoelki Cespedes is out there now. The reports I have on Yoelki's from his time playing in Cuba, some of the international competition with some of the youth teams there are that he's, you know, he's built like his brother. He's a physical marvel to some degree, has big power, has big arm strength. The swing is kind of rough and his field to hit is not great, but you know, the degree of confidence with which I say that for Cuban players is low. Their at-bats are pretty inconsistent. No one has seen Yuelkis play, at least that I've talked to, in quite a while, right? Like, he had to leave the island, and the rate at which these guys play and are seen is, is pretty variable. So um, the degree of confidence I have in evaluating the hit tool for any and all Cubans is pretty low. And we've seen, even with some guys who perform after a while that their initial foray into pro ball over here can be quite a struggle. Like Jose Garcia with the Reds was like this. Puig was like this. Even when Puig worked out for teams, he looked heavy and and rusty just because of his circumstances surrounding his defection. And so like there's a lot of this stuff that is still up in the air. But Yoelkis is working out with, I think it was Jesse Sanchez who reported it for uh, MLB that Yoelkis is working out with his brother and uh, will work out for teams soon. So that's more of a more of a famous name to look out for than it is like a prospect that scouts were super psyched about coming out of Cuba. But it's that time of year where it's, you know, it's times for the teams who don't have money committed to this upcoming July 2 period are are looking to find places to stick it. And maybe Yuaki Cespedes is one of those guys. And then the final thing before I, I leave you is read Ben Clemens's piece on Trevor Bauer. You know, Bauer is a lightning rod. He's an interesting person who says and does some things that can be considered inflammatory. And I think that some, some of like the, the way people have challenged his views, the views that he's expressed publicly, I think is totally fair. He's going to be a prominent person in our game for a while, it seems like. He's motivated to be, uh, he does have interesting thoughts on baseball-related stuff that I find fascinating and will eventually, I think, see him put in a booth. He's starting to cut his teeth on that end. He's got, you know, a pretty prominent social media presence. He's got a YouTube channel, all this stuff now. Ben wrote about just a dramatic spin rate increase in the middle of nowhere late last year. I went and saw one of Bauer's starts during that stretch that Ben identified as having you know, unusually high fastball spin rates, increases beyond what is normal start to start. And it wasn't, I guess, you know, there's a chance that the TrackMan units are miscalibrated or whatever, but the fact that this occurred over the course of several starts makes that pretty unlikely. But I did see one of those Bauer starts. He went eight innings against Arizona. He was incredible. You know, the list of big league starters who I've seen in person who look that nasty is pretty short. And I do have high-speed video up close of Bauer from that outing, some of which is already online. If you go to the Fangraphs YouTube channel, I posted video from that start shortly after I took it. Just, you know, to see his, his pitch groups and releases. And I have about 30 clips from that start, like just on the old external hard drive from that, where I store all my video. And uh, I was looking through them after Ben's piece, and, you know, I have to mess with the light on the, the camera, the light filter, to best see the seams and the grip so that they're not just 
the lights of the stadium or the sun wherever I'm shooting don't totally drown out the seams. And yeah, like sometimes it looks like there's stuff on the ball. Not all the time. And a lot of the times it just looks like dirt. Like it could just be dirt. It is not inconsistent with what I've seen from other pitchers when I'm shooting hot, like up close high speed video. Just dirt gets on the ball, man. Like it happens. And so there does appear to be stuff on the baseball and some of these high speed clips that I've got um, stored on my personal hard drive. Again, like a couple of these are online already. You can You can find them. But I don't know that it's pine tar or some other concoction. And it's not uncommon for me to see this type of thing on the baseball from any number of other pitchers, including other like big leaguers, Cy Young type big leaguers I've got high-speed video of where there's stuff on the ball. But it just looks like dirt, and I really don't know. I did think it was interesting that, that Bauer had a theatrical performance the same day that Ben's piece came out that he was signaling to Dodgers hitters what pitches were coming the same day that Ben's piece came out. And of course, then the discussion surrounding Trevor Bauer the rest of that day was the fact that he had done that. So I think that's very clever because I wouldn't want to talk about frog splash sunscreen and my spit and whatever else is going on the back of my cap. But a lot of guys are doing it and I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I think it's interesting. And I'm going to continue to take a high speed of these guys and see what's going on with topical substances. It's happening a lot. You know, you watch SEC games and it's a lot of licking your fingers, kind of sort of wiping them off on your pants and then touching the, the back of the dome of your, your cap and then going to the baseball and throwing like pretty hellacious breaking stuff. So MLB has said recently they're going to crack down on foreign substances on the baseball, but it's pretty pervasive in my opinion and good luck policing it. So those are my thoughts for this week. Thank you guys for listening to this pinch hit edition of Fangraphs Audio. I am lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. My content is available fangraphs.com slash prospects. I wrote a book with erstwhile prospect analyst Kylie McDaniel, now of ESPN. It's called Future Value. You can pre-order that now. And maybe I'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. Thanks.